I had several scriptures and ideas and conversations with the Lord this week, and I, I really didn't know exactly which one I was supposed to share this morning. And last night at 10:30, I was done and ready, and and I decided that um, the I, the Lord was telling me to do something else. So I got up and and uh, put this together. And so I didn't sleep much last night, but it was a good time with God. Here's the word of the Lord for this morning. 1 Kings 2.10 is, so this verse is King David's death. And it says, so David rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. So David dies. And it's the, the wording is very poetic. It says he rested with his fathers. It means he died. I just want to draw out that phrase, that David rested with his fathers. Okay, 1 Kings 11, nine chapters later, uh, you've read through, if you're reading 1 Kings, you've read through the life of Solomon, and then he passes away, and it says again, 1 Kings 11:43, Solomon rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David his father, and Rehoboam his son reigned in his place. Just again want to bring out that phrase that Solomon rested with his fathers, that when these men died, God's word says, there it's rest and that it's with their ancestors with their family all right just we'll move on from that but we'll come back to it so second kings 14 first and second kings go all the way through from david and his kingdom in a thousand bc all the way down to uh, just a little short time after 500 bc when the kingdoms of judah and israel were conquered by assyria and babylon and it's a history of their nation and all the kings and it's one son after another after another after another and david's direct family line all the way down to jesus it's jesus is a direct physical genetic descendant of king david and that's important in the New Testament. But you, you read through this, you read each, each son succeeds his father in the kingdom and it tells what each one did. And as you go through First and Second Kings and the life of David and Solomon and then there his son and grandson and great-grandson and great-great-grandson and great-great-great-great-grandson and so on, down for 500 years, this is what it says about each one all the way through. It, First Kings, uh, Second Kings 14, it says Amaziah was 25 years old when he became king. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, yet not like his father David. He did everything as his father Joash had done. Second Kings 16 is uh, regarding Amaziah's uh, grandson, I think. Uh, it says Ahaz was 25 years old when he, 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. He did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord, his God, as his father David has done. 2 Kings 18, the next king says, Now it came to pass in the third year of Hosea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. With every king, I've just picked out a few here, with every king it says, he was this old when he became king. He ruled this many ages, uh, this many years, and he it either says he did or he did not attain to the righteousness of his father David. That each one is listed as a young man from. They, you'll see in just a second. Josiah became king when he was eight. These other guys are in their twenties. They're a young man, and God synopses their life in one sentence of they were either as righteous as their father David or they weren't. I just want to point out that each young man. 
as he lives his life, God's standard of judging whether that young man succeeded or not is whether he lived up to his ancestor David or not. That he did according to, at this point, Hezekiah is maybe 300 or more years after David, and God's standard of judgment on whether Hezekiah succeeds or not is he was like David or he wasn't. Second Chronicles 33, Ammon This is going on down the family line several more generations. Ammon was 22 years old when he became king. He reigned two years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord as his father Manasseh had done. For Ammon sacrificed to all the carved images which his father Manasseh had made and he served them. But he did not humble himself before the Lord as his father Manasseh had humbled himself. But Ammon trespassed more and more. So Manasseh, this king Ammon's dad, Manasseh was a wicked, evil dude. He was really, really bad. But at the very end of his life, he repented before the Lord and God forgave him for his sins. And then his son Ammon comes and because he had raised his son Ammon under this idolatrous demonic system of worship and not following the ways of God, Ammon grows up and he reverses everything his dad had repented for and he goes back to following these idols and gods and demonic system of witchcraft worship. And But I just want you to see again that God's standard of God's standard of judging Ammon is he was not as righteous as his dad. He's measured by his ancestor, but this case is his dad. But all of them are measured by did they live up to the righteousness of their ancestors or not. On down the line, 2 Kings 22, Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidah, the daughter of Adiah, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in all the ways of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. Josiah is maybe nearly 400 years after David. That's a long, long time. Now think about it. It's only been 240 years since George Washington. But God's standard for Josiah is, did you do it like David, your great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandpa, or did you not? Are you with me so far? God's standard of judging whether these guys succeeded in, in being a good king is they were either like David, or he says, nope, they weren't. They were ungodly because they weren't like their, their forefather. God's standard of judgment is for these men and how they succeeded in righteousness and succeeded as kings is did they live up to their ancestors' righteousness or not? There's a scene in the movie, or you've read the book, Lord of the Rings, where Tolkien, in his character, it's in the last book, the last battle between good and evil, and the forces of good have won, and evil's been defeated, but there's a king that's wounded in that battle. He's mortally wounded, and he's going to die. And his niece and his and his son are there mourning his death, and, and they're crying, and he says, he's not really been a good king. He's been bewitched part of the time under a curse, and then, and then he's kind of selfish. He won't fight for the his allies. Um, but anyway, he gets mortally wounded in this battle, fighting evil, and, and his family is mourning the fact that he's about to die. And right there on the battlefield, he says, whether you've read in the book or you've seen it in the movie, you'll know who I'm talking about. He says, no, now I can go to my father's with honor. I don't know if you remember that, and I know it's not his exact words, but he says, now I can go Actually, what he says is, now I can go to my father's and not be ashamed. Now, it's a fiction story, but Tolkien's a godly man. He's a Christian, and he's writing about 
some truth about honor that is not unbiblical because the Bible says David rested with his fathers and Solomon rested with his fathers. And Tolkien puts it in the mouth of this kingly character that he had lived without honor, but he fought and he died with honor. And now he can go and stand in front of his forefathers and not be ashamed for the way he lived his life because he died with honor. Hello? God's standard of judging us is, yes, it's the righteousness of Jesus and his blood is pure and washes us from sin, but we will be judged by our forefathers and foremothers in the faith and in our families. Did we live up to their victory or not? Because Hebrews 12.1 says this, Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off every sin that hinders us and run our race, which is before us. Hebrews 11 is a list of all the chapter of the heroes of faith of the Old Testament from Abraham and Sarah through down through everybody else, Samson and Gideon and, and Deborah, and there's all these heroes. And then whoever wrote Hebrews for us says, since they're watching, since they won and now they are watching us, we better throw off anything that's slowing us down and run our race. They ran their race. They fought their battle. You run yours. You fight yours. Because they're watching. And they are the standard that we will be judged by. They're the ones who went before us and showed us the way. Whether that's in your natural family or in the church or in biblical history or in our national history, our ancestors are watching. Our forefathers and foremothers can see us. Are you living up to their success? Are you living up to their accomplishments? Are you living up to their righteousness? Or are they ashamed of their descendants? There's the next picture here. I have some friends that are Native American since I've been to Thompson, uh, Manitoba twice now, and I have Nez Perce friends here. And I found this on Facebook where one of my Indian friends in Thompson posted this. And I would suppose that the Cree, as well as most other Native American tribes in North America, they feel the loss of their past, probably more so than those of us who are white, because they've been cut off from their heritage. And their ancestors lived such completely different lives than they do. They feel that distinctly. They are losing their language. They have programs to teach their kids Cree in Manitoba because their kids are growing up speaking English. Uh, Will and I are reading a book right now by a Sioux man from South Dakota a hundred years ago who became a Christian and adopted white ways, cut his hair, wore a suit, but he spent his entire life writing books about the boyhood that he had lost and the culture of his people that had been lost, and the old chiefs and braves and warriors saying, our sons don't know how to survive in the woods. They don't know how to hunt buffalo. They don't know how to make a teepee anymore. And they were losing their culture and their ways, and, and it's just, it's history. It's the history of the world. It's not just their story. Lots and lots of people have been conquered and 
relocated and and all but it's it's a it's a well-known story now so the my friend in in nelson house um, manitoba put this i speaking to her indian family and friends have you made your ancestors proud today and they realize that their disconnect from their history and from their natural family and their tribe and their ancestors they're disconnected from what their people used to know and who they used to be they've their music and dress and food and hunting and construction skills and their spiritual understanding it's a death of knowledge and a culture because they aren't living the way their ancestors lived well i think that probably no matter what our national or ethnic heritages are in the room all of our ancestors would probably be ashamed of us. Whether your ancestor is an Indian brave or a Viking or a frontiersman or an African lion hunter or a Southeast Asian jungle tamer, they were industrious women and builders and land tamers and sea conquerors. Your great-great-grandparents who had to milk their own cow and then make butter and cheese and weave and sew their own clothes and hand wash those clothes and hunt or butcher their own meat and build their own house, you really think they're buying your excuse that you're too busy to clean your own house? After they spent all day plowing or working in the rice paddy or hunting wolves or lions or fighting off some enemy from stealing their crops, do you think they'd be okay with the amount of time we spend on our butt staring at a screen? What do you think they could have accomplished if they'd had electricity and a vehicle and a washing machine and a dishwasher and Walmart? So I say this morning, ask your grandpa's advice because he's more of a man than you. He's been around longer. He knows some things you don't know. Well, my grandpa's dead. Well, you can read. G.K. Chesterton calls it the democracy of the dead. That honor your father and mother does not just mean mom and dad. It means all of our ancestors and foremothers and forefathers in the church or in the nation or in the family. And that when we have an elders meeting at our church and we have an important decision to make, we need to include D.L. Moody and John Wesley and Martin Luther and Bob Jones. What would they tell us? They're gone. But we know what they thought. We honor our fathers and our mothers. So I know that some of you didn't have godly grandparents or great-grandparents. We all have losers in our family tree, and we all have winners. I don't know how many of you have the privilege of knowing a great-grandparent, but there's a reason why God puts us born into, when we are young and helpless, we are born into a family and a nation and a culture and a church that's existed for thousands of years. Because that's how we're equipped to live life. Is the training of our elders, the wisdom that they've gained through the years. And then we take it and we pass it on to our grandkids. So what would grandma tell you? About marriage or money or disciplining kids? What would grandpa say? about how to man up. I realize some of you didn't have a good example in that. We are about three generations into 
the ruination of our culture, and we have an extremely arrogant culture that has rejected our past. And in the 50s and 60s, rejected our parents. So the people my age and younger, we can't even look at grandma and grandpa sometimes because they were a disaster. But you go back far enough, you have righteous people in your family. You have a heritage that you inherited in your natural family or in the, in the, the family we call the family of God in the church or the family we call America or our nation. We have forefathers and foremothers and we are to honor them. And even if we can't learn anything good, you can learn what not to do. And you can thank God for wisdom. Honor your father and mother, folks. And that includes grandma and grandpa and great-grandma and great-grandpa. Listen to them. Hear their stories. Listen to their lessons that they've learned in life. Listen to their wisdom. Proverbs twenty-two twenty-eight says, Do not remove the ancient landmark which your fathers have set. Another translation says, Do not move an ancient boundary stone which was put in place by your ancestors. In the ancient world, they didn't use fences to border out their property like we do now. They put rocks on the corners of the property. And the Native Americans here did that. There's a Nez Perce marking stone still at the top of Smith Mountain above Minam. You can go there and see it. Chief Joseph put it there himself. Uh, Smith Mountain above Minam is the southwest corner of what was the Nez Perce land that went all the way to Orofino and Kamei and uh, Lewiston area. And you can see that stone still today. It's their boundary stone. It's the corner of their property that they claimed amongst the other tribes. This verse says, don't move a boundary stone that your forefathers put in place. In the immediate physical sense of that scripture, it means don't steal somebody's land by moving a marker stone. But for us, the spiritual application is don't move the boundaries that your ancestors defined. If they lived a certain way, you live the same way. What they said was right and wrong, up and down, east and west, you do the same. We don't lightly move the boundaries that our ancestors put in place for us and call it progress. Do you hear me? We have 6,000 years of human history of doing marriage and family and child rearing a certain way. And with one Supreme Court case, we rip it all out of the history books and call it progress. And the boundary has been completely demolished. We don't move a boundary stone that our forefathers and foremothers put in place. The reason our world is in such a mess is because we don't have any boundary stones anymore. They've all been moved. We don't know who we are or where we are and what direction is up or down or east and west because with sex or family or gender roles, anything goes. There are no boundary markers anymore. Kids have no compass whatsoever about what is a husband, what is a wife, what is marriage, what is discipline? What is family? Work ethic, how we handle money, integrity and loyalty. What is a government? What is it for? The boundary markers have all been moved. Our definitions of honor and courage, even death. In the church, the doctrines that have served us for 2,000 years have been dropped as legalistic. I'm going to throw it in the trash and call it progress. We are removing the boundary stones that our forefathers have set up. History is being rewritten by college professors. Even math is being made incomprehensible. I'm serious. 
the concrete universal truths of mathematics that have served us since the Egyptians built the pyramids are being rewritten for our elementary school kids. It is a disaster. It's a satanic plot to make our kids stupid. I don't mean that the people who wrote Common Core are in cahoots with the devil. They're just stupid. Satan is using it to make our kids dumb, to dumb down humanity, to defeat us. The boundaries are being moved. Nine times in the Bible is the exact phrase, honor your father and mother. Honor your father and mother. It doesn't mean you believe that they're perfect. It doesn't mean that we worship them and say that they did no wrong. It means we honor them. Even when they were not good, we honor them. Honor is not blind to sin, though, because Jeremiah 16, 19 says, Our fathers inherited lies, worthless and unprofitable things. There would be time from time in the Old Testament where a revival of repentance would come to Israel and they would reject the idols that their parents and grandparents had raised them to worship and they would return to Yahweh God. That's the context of one of these verses. It's not throwing mom and dad and what they did and who they were in the trash. It is saying, no, they taught us wrong. They didn't teach us to worship the real God and we are returning to the real God. So honoring mom and dad does not mean being honest about the faults of our past, of a family, or as a nation, a culture, or even as the church history. It doesn't mean that we hide the sins of the past, but it does mean that we honor our forefathers and our foremothers, and we don't blame them for our problems said we don't blame the people of the past for our problems. The world would like to blame anybody but me. Well, this certain race group is the problem. Whites or blacks or Hispanics or Christianity is the problem or men are the problem or Europeans are the problem or war is the problem or economics is the problem. Really the truth is there are quality people and there are worthless people in every group. I said there are quality people in every group and there are worthless people in every group. There will always be those who are dignified and righteous and responsible and those who are violent and victims and leeches. No race or gender group can claim that they have a righteous past and that somebody else ruined them. Whether your history is European or African or Native American or Chinese or Japanese, there is not a single person in this room that doesn't have slave owners and headhunters and murderers and war criminals in your family tree. So it is very easy for us in 2015 to denounce what happened in the American South 150 years ago. But when we judge our ancestors from our day and time, not knowing who they were and the world they lived in and the circumstances of the time, it makes us blind to our own sin. I said it is very easy, it is cliche, to denounce American slavery system of the 17 and 1800s. 
but there are now, today, 2015, there are multiple times more people in the Southeast Asian sweatshops making your JCPenney's and Maurice's clothing. There are more people in the Chinese prison factories making your iPhone and your Christmas lights. There are more people coming across the border from Mexico to work for slave labor than ever existed in the American South. I am not saying anything in the past was okay or excusable or right. I'm saying when you denounce your ancestors and judge them, it makes you blind to our own problems in 2015, which are bigger than what they did. There are more people in slavery in the world now than ever before. We just don't call it that. This last week on Monday, it was the cool thing to denounce Christopher Columbus and call it Native People's Day. But the truth is that even if you take the, most la the largest, most biased number from the most revisionist historians, it was not this number. But even if we give them this number, credence, that 50 million Native Americans died of smallpox or war at the hands of the Spanish and English and French, over 300 years. It was more like 10 or 12 million, which is not excusable at all. But let's say that the liberal historians who want to blame the Europeans, let's give them their most outrageous estimate of 50 million over 300 years. And they want to curse them and defame them and blame Christianity and blame men and blame Europeans. What it took our forefathers and our government 300 years to do, it has taken our mothers and our government 40 years to do. We have killed 54 million babies in America just since 1974. A liberal historian just this week said that the destruction of the Native Americans at the hands of the Spanish, English, and French was the greatest catastrophe in world history. It is not even close to what is going on right now. Uh, 1.4 billion people murdered in the last 35 years. My point is, it is easy to judge people in the past and be blind to our own disasters. Obviously, I know there's women here who had abortions and you know you're forgiven and you're covered in the blood of Jesus and you have grace. But it is a disaster. I am not disparaging or belittling the massacre of Native Americans at the hands of the Spanish. I'm saying it is when we self-righteously, hypocritically want to condemn our past, we become blind to what we are doing that is worse than what our forefathers and foremothers did. So honor does not include willfully being ignorant of our sin, of their sin. And it is not blaming them for all our problems. There are those who want to paint the past in some broad stroke that everyone was a slave-owning woman suppressing homophobic bigot. Others want to paint with the opposite brush. There's this nostalgia that the world was some sort of Anne of Green Gables or Jane Austen fairy tale. The truth is, neither one of those is true. The world was what it was and it is what it is. And there were great people and there were terrible people. You start blaming races or groups or genders. 
We start throwing our ancestors in the trash for what they did wrong or what they didn't understand, the same as we understand today, or to think that we understand it right now and that our grandkids won't be embarrassed of our morals is ridiculously arrogant. Godly honor deals with the facts. Instead of revisionist history propaganda, it does not honor, uh, honor does not judge their lives and their time in history by our moral objections in today's world. Yes, we should honestly repent for the past sins of our nation or our family or Christian history, but it is gross pride to reject our ancestors' wisdom and call it progress. So we are honest and we are honoring that racial prejudice happened and still does happen and many times in the name of Jesus. And it is sick. And we better denounce it and fight it for whatever it's worth. But that doesn't mean that we throw our brains out and say that we don't make judgments about right and wrong. An example is this. Last summer I heard a black preacher, an elderly man. I wish I could reproduce his voice because he had that blackness in his voice that preachers do that is just fantastic. I'm not even going to attempt to recreate it. But he had marched in the 50s and 60s in the civil rights movement. Elderly black man now in his late 70s or early 80s. And he had marched in the 50s and 60s for his own civil rights and the civil rights of his people in the South. But last summer, when the debate was going on, the issue of that day, he said, I did not, his exact words, I did not march one mile, not one foot, not one inch, so that a man could marry a man. And it is a gross insult to take the beauty of God's creation, which is their skin and their race and their culture, and compare that to what somebody wants to pervert in sin and say that they're both the same civil right and they're both the same victims of prejudice. Where our forefathers and mothers missed it, we confess it and we repent. Where they were right, we do not change 6,000 years of human history and rewrite it and call it progress. Honor gives high respect to your family your nation's founders, your Christian forefathers and foremothers, the martyrs that have gone before us, the champions and builders and warriors, both in the world and in the church. Where we need to, we confess their sins and we learn from their ignorance. We never ever remove their boundaries that worked for them and call it progress. We ask their advice because they know more than we do. We live up to their expectations. We live by their boundaries and wisdom. And we take what we inherit from them and we pass it on to our grandkids. Absolutely, in your family line, there are sins that need broken and traditions that do not need passed on. I understand that. But where there was righteousness, you take it and you pass it on. Where there was ignorance or evil in your family past or our church past, we confess it, we repent, we get it under the blood, we teach our kids a different way. Where grandma and grandpa and great-great-grandpa and grandma were right, we tell our kids, this is the way, walk ye in it.
Last scripture is Jeremiah 6. The Lord said to his people, stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths where the best road is. Walk on it and you will live in peace. God says, ask for the ancient paths. Walk in it. There is your peace. You don't get thrown around by winds of doctrine in the church. You don't get thrown around by fads in politics. You walk in the ways that have always been righteous, the ways that have worked for every generation. Listen to Grandma and Grandpa. Even the ones you don't know, you can read. You can know who they were and what worked in their world. They have some wisdom. God has some wisdom. Jesus has some wisdom. If you are completely lost because your family is so screwed up, you have no moral compass, you have no measure, you need to know that Jesus is the ultimate boundary stone. He is the rock by which everything else is surveyed. Do you know that there's a stone, it's called the Willamette Stone in Western Oregon, that all of the Western United States is measured against by surveyors? You can go to it and see it. It's, it's the exact section measurement of all surveyors use. Those of you who in the woods, you know there's survey markers on the trees everywhere. Uh, corners of sections and things and all of it. It says such and such, such and such, east or west, north or south of the Willamette Stone. It's Jesus. All righteousness is measured by Jesus. So where our ancestors missed it, we move the stone so that it lines up with Jesus. Where our ancestors got it right, we do not move their boundaries because they had some wisdom. They had some understanding about what was family, the proper boundaries for sex, how to discipline children, how to handle money, how to stay married when it's tough. Do not move their boundaries. Listen to Grandma. Measure righteousness by Jesus. Amen.